Europe remains under attack by the forces of Kang, although the Avengers Thor and Firebird have been seen assisting a counter-offensive by the French army, while another group of Avengers, accompanied by robotic sentinels, have headed off toward Kang's Sword of Damocles in orbit around the Earth. Confusion today in Chicago, as the local organized crime community is reported to be under the control of the Delphini brothers, following a fight between strongman Nobby Piles and the mysterious figure known as Joe Fixit, in the course of which a number of small dogs appear to have been used as weapons. It's unknown whether this has any connection to the recently reported demise of New York's kingpin of crime. And, this Justin, the enormous pyramidal structure that recently entered our solar system is under attack by the religious organization known as the Triune Understanding and their, quote, spiritual ship. This is Doombot CH7 for the VOL. Zero. Tu, tu. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero. Tu. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good, or bad, but we will always tell you the truth, as Lord Doom sees it. Every week on The Voice of Latveria, we examine Marvel Comics history, through the career of its greatest hero, Dr. Victor Von Doom. And now, here's your host, Douglas Walk, the man who has read every Marvel superhero comic book, and lived to tell us all about it. Thank you, Doombot ND14. Our guest this week is Greg Matasevich, who's a contributor to Multiversity Comics site and also co-hosts Multiversity Comics Robots from Tomorrow podcast. Welcome, Greg. Thank you so much for coming to the show. We are technically looking at more issues on today's episode than we have looked at on any previous one, but we're probably going to go through them all pretty fast. Uh, what we're looking at is Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comics magazine, numbers one through 12. This was a 2001 project. It, the world's greatest comics mag magazine as distinct from Fantastic Four itself, which is the world's greatest comic magazine. Huh. Little, uh, nice little... Uh, differentiation there that I did not pick up on. This uh, is set at a point immediately after a Doctor Doom appearance that we're not really talking about because it's a fake Doom appearance. It's Fantastic Four number 100, where Doom and basically everybody else the FF have ever fought turns up, but they're all just puppet master puppets or illusions or something. It's because it's, it's the greatest hit show. Because it's number 100 and also, Stanley and Jack Kirby's relationship was really breaking down at that point. Mm. Uh, they would only do a few more issues together. So, can you talk a little about like the origins of the world's greatest comics magazine here? Yeah. Uh, so this comes at a really interesting period. It, uh, as you said, it's published, you know, 2001. So we're looking at the 40th anniversary of uh, the Fantastic Four as a title, and this is a uh homage slash love letter uh work of love from a dedicated group of uh kirby lee kirby uh certain but certainly kirby um fans disciples acolytes and a few actual um collaborators this was spearheaded i guess it's simple to say by eric larson uh who is a unabashed uh you know kirby devotee um and he got a bunch of uh, people together to basically do a 12-issue, uh, you know, caps, 
kind of a capstone to the run that Lee and Kirby were never able to do themselves for, as you, you know, mentioned sort of various reasons. Um, and they were not only doing this as a, like as an homage, they basically wanted this to be issues, you know, 100.1.2.3, whatever, uh, between issue 100 and issue, you know, 101. So the uh, folks that he got, which we'll, we'll be sure get to uh, fairly uh, quickly, um, they were trying to do uh, these comics as if Lee and Kirby did them down to, you know, very, very specific style and, you know, a minutia and, 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 and things. And I feel like for the most part, they're, they're pretty successful. Um, but it was that like one year of this, uh, you know, um, homage, uh, love letter, uh, mini that we're gonna, that we're gonna talk about uh, today. Yeah. It's, it's, when this was published, 2001 was an interesting moment for Marvel. Uh, mm -hmm. They were a few years out of bankruptcy, uh, and Joe Casada was running the place. Uh, mm -hmm. Tom Brevoort was kind of rising through the ranks, and Tom Brevoort actually takes over editing this like two thirds of the way through. Mm -hmm. um, before that, it, it's uh, uh, Bobby Chase. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a moment where they're working with a lot of really interesting artists who had just kind of come into the fold a couple of years earlier. And they're also, you know, it's 40 years, the company they're, they're looking back They're This is coming out around the same time as the beginning of ultimate Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. um, it's coming out uh, after the Marvel Knights books. And there's a couple of people who had worked on Marvel Knights books who are working on these two. There's a guy named uh, Jorge Lucas, who's really, really mm -hmm. interesting, who's not, he's not a super big name, but he's done a bunch of comics all around this time. And he's a real stylistic chameleon. Like, uh, he mm -hmm. does part of an Inhumans miniseries and he's doing like full on Mobius. Mm -hmm. uh, and here he's doing full on Jack Kirby and everybody's doing full on Jack Kirby as as close to that look as they can. Um, Eric Larson's laying it out. The other person who's kind of involved with this from the inception is Eric Stevenson, mm -hmm. who's now Image mm -hmm. Comics publisher. And mm -hmm. you don't think of him as a make mine Marvel kind of person necessarily. No, uh, no, no. But he's a great big Jack Kirby enthusiast and mm -hmm. a great big kind of classic Marvel enthusiast around this time. I think he also does uh, a sequence in, I think, Web Spinners, Tales of Spider-Man, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. where he wraps up the cliffhanger from Silver Surfer 18 from back in 1980, which is the, mm -hmm. the last issue of that series. And it's like, well, we never found that, found that. what happened to that? Let's do a Spider-Man story set, you know, 30 years worth of comics ago where we figure out where that story went. Yeah. Yeah, it, interesting that, you know, around this time, this is such a, not just a throwback to an earlier time, but a continuity patch slash love letter uh, around the same time that, like, Casada was very, you know, we need to, like, not do these type of things, like uh, Burns' hidden, hidden years, you know, was, like, essentially this type of thing, and Casada's like, nope, you know, but... 12 issue, you know, Kirby Lee love letter, you know, thumbs up. Let's, uh, uh, let's go. So 
uh, yeah, it's uh, it is really um, you know interesting and an interesting mix of of folks. You know, you mentioned obviously it's spearheaded by Eric Larson, uh, and you go through the list of people that are involved, and it's a lot of people that you you know would recognize as you know Lee Kirby is certainly Kirby devotees. Um, uh, uh, Keith Giffen uh, lays out uh, a couple of issues that, that Larson, you know, didn't have, uh, you know, wasn't able to do. If you're going to get a guy to basically lay out stories, Keith Giffen is kind of your, like, that's kind of one of his, you know, one of his MOs. Um, Bruce Tim does a lot of inking. Uh, he did uh, Avengers 1.5 uh, maybe like a year or so before this and tried to do a, well, I mean, he did a sort of a full on Kirby type of thing i think successfully but he had does not look but i mean he may look back on it fondly now but he was like it was a real uh, much harder for him to do in a way that he felt satisfied with so here he is brought on as kind of a one of these smoothing anchors you know to sort of give people a uh, give artists that uh, you know a lot of that sort of kirby um sheen um Anybody else really, really? Uh, Joe Sinod actually inks a bunch mm-hmm. of it. And yeah. you know, he had actually inked the lion's share of uh, the original Kirby run. And so mm-hmm. it's it's obviously going to have that look. Um, yeah. And then there's also, you know, the Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends team, uh, which mm-hmm. had done tons of comics, like a long run on Fantastic Four, a long run on Thor, a long run on Spider-Man. And they are... They've always been like, you know, we do it the way that Stan and Jack would have done it. Like that, mm-hmm. it, that is our formula. We're going to push everything back to that. We're going to make it all look like that. And you know, yeah. here they're getting to actually do that and yeah. really sold at it. Um, yeah. you know, Steve, that was actually a, a lot of, uh, not to, to, to cut you off, but yeah. in terms of my introduction to Kirby, that was really their run on Thor. So that DeFalco, but really Friends and Sinnott. That was kind of where Kirby became a thing for me to where I was really loving that stuff. And then saying, oh, that looks just like this old, this older stuff from this. I probably knew his name, but like, oh, Kirby. And then it was like having seen that and been exposed to that, I could look at the Kirby stuff and kind of unlock it in a way that I couldn't sort of before. So to see them now doing that here uh it doesn't surprise me that they are the team uh, one of the teams sort of working with this that really kind of get it on a you know on a dna level um because they you know have been doing it for you know for so long and sort of perfecting those chops so they're just like hey we can we can do this all day it's interesting to see the different aspects of jack kirby that people take on uh, mm-hmm. at the end of number 8 there's a sequence that's rick veach and terry Beatty. And mm. it actually has like a pretty convincing fake Jack Kirby collage page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it yeah. is it is an actual Kirby collage that's been turned upside down and repurposed or something. But it 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 really really has that look to it. Um, yeah, that is a that is an interesting uh, point. As I was looking through this stuff, um, you know, you get so many uh, Kirby folks in here, and they're all. I feel like they're all successful in their own way, but it's interesting to see who picks up on what out of Kirby. Yeah. So like Rick Veach was somebody that doesn't 
I mean, for me personally, he doesn't have the slickness that Kirby can have at some point. His stuff tends to be a little, I don't want to say uglier, but a little like, mm, let's say uglier, but not necessarily in a bad way. But in terms of like his staging, his proportions, his like, um, you know, setting, uh, he really is able to, uh, to evoke a lot of that Kirby stuff. And that, uh, you know, that section in particular, um, I feel like him because he shows up a couple of times in here, and I think him being inked by Beatty, uh, I think Beatty plays more to his strengths. He was inked a little bit by Al Williamson, maybe at the beginning of that issue or like the issue before. And I love Al Williamson as an inker, I really, really do. Not a great combination, yeah. Not like it wasn't, it wasn't bad, but it's like we're seeing Kirby. At his, you know, his, you know, sinity sort of royer heavier, he's getting bolder. And so going with a thinner line, it did not, it didn't quite work for me. Um, and I feel almost bad saying that because I love Al Williamson as an artist and as an anchor. Um, but uh, yeah, um, but it's still, you know, it, it's still good. And it's still uh, the underlying sort of <laughs> vichness uh, getting to Kirby is all, is all um it's all still there i think it's interesting that kirby is really the one artist or one of the very few artists who you can also think of as a genre like mm -hmm. there are kirby based comics there are people working in that style professionally uh in a way that you can barely say about anybody else and there there has never been a Steve Ditko tribute that works as a like, oh yeah, this this looks real Ditko-y. Like people do other things with it. Uh, there's the Craig Russell stuff. There's that amazing uh, Brendan McCarthy thing from a few years ago, Fever. But you ca you can't really do a full issue's worth of Ditkoisms. He's just not somebody you can pull off imitating. Kirby, like yeah. there are people who can just draw Kirby all day. Uh, and it, it's it's interesting to see you know how what people take away from Kirby and sort of how they incorporate that into their own thing. And one of the one of the interesting tricks about this mini is that this was them trying to not just like do Kirby, but like be a very specific Kirby. And one of the one of the people that I feel really really you know has taken Jack sort of like into his heart and kind of made him his own, but not like tried to turn into Jack uh, is Steve Rude. Yeah. Steve Rude has two pages towards the end in the last issue that it is, it's pretty clear that Steve was like, I'm doing, I'm doing Steve Rude on these, on these things, but I bring, I bring the Kirby with me, but like, I'm not going to try and kind of, I'm not going to try and be 1969 Kirby. I'm going to be, you know, essence Steve of rude. Yeah. yeah, like <laughs> essence of Kirby. And it's great. Like he does, he has two splash pages and I don't know if this was by design or whatever, but the way that they are set up, the way that they're staged, you don't have a lot of, or you don't really have very many uh, human faces in there that I think would be sort of like the biggest giveaway that it was, is, you know, not, uh, not Jack. They're, they're, they're wonderful um, pages, but I feel like if this, is, if they had done this type of a, you know, the story's the same, but if they'd done this as something like, you know, Children of the Atom, which was that uh, Steve Rude 
uh, uh, Joe Casey mini from around the same time ish. Yeah. I feel um, it would have been, you know, if they had had like maybe if it's you know twelve issues or six uh, and had like a different artist do an issue, that would have been an interesting experiment. Like if you'd have had a Steve Root issue, a Bruce Tim issue, a you know a Rick Veach issue, a Senate uh, friend, you know, friends Senate uh, issue that would have been also interesting and reading this i think overall they for the amount of you know plate spinning and people working and everything i think they do a really good job uh in in pulling this off i enjoyed it i think it's successful it is i i find myself maybe focusing more on the production of it than the story because things will change from page page to page to page in a way that I mean, not that if you go back and look at the, you know, original comics or I guess just, you know, sort of comics in general, there is a fluidity to them that hey, this page looks different than, you know, the, the art style on this page looks slightly different than the art style of the page, you know, a couple of uh, a couple of pages earlier. And be like, well, he was sick that day. Right. Like whoever was working on it, like had something physically going on at the day. So even though Kirby is doing Kirby style or whoever is doing like their style there is the different thing of like, you have to actually put it on page and sometimes there's, there's differentiation, but to see something like this, where the seams can be a little more, a little more obvious. It does remind you that there is art, a little more artifice to this. Um, so it can be a little, uh, and I don't know if this is just me, uh, you know, somebody who doesn't necessarily pay attention to that uh, uh, sort of stuff may be able to gloss over it a little more. Um, but it does sort of call that out um, a little from my um, uh, from my reading. Um, somebody else who you want to talk about Kirby as genre, uh, somebody who I was surprised to see in here was Tom Scioli. Yeah. Did you? Those, yeah. I was like, what? No. And then I look at those pages and I was like, I can, I can kind of see it. Yeah. Um, and so it, it is, it, you know, having like you said, Kirby a genre and looking at this as the sort of like list of, okay, if you wanted to get, uh, you know, Kirby people in there, who would you, who would you get nowadays? You'd be like, well, Tom Scioli would have to be, I mean, he would have to be one of them. And luckily he was, you know, a big enough, uh, big enough on the scene at the time. I think, I mean, this is pre, I want to say pre Godland, like myth of Oedipus, I think might've been what he yes, was working on. Yeah like around that time. So he knew somebody who knew somebody or whatever. So he got tapped for a couple of pages and it's good to have him kind of in that, you know, in that roll call. Um, was there anybody that you wish had been in here that wasn't? Haven't really thought about that at all, but, but, uh, cause I had a name that popped up talking about Jorge Lucas. Um, there is, uh, so that it humans mini that he did or that he worked on, uh he did i think the last issue of that yeah. uh mini the first three issues were done by jose ladrone yeah who is the name that i really wish they could have gotten yeah um, that's... Uh, for this especially be, i mean you look at the inhuman stuff and he's you know clearly doing the heavy metal mobius thing and it's oh my god it's gorgeous um around this time i think really around this time he was doing his cable run with joe casey and he did uh, basically a, a cable and the harbinger of apocalypse 
uh, and the Avengers. So he did like a full on, you know, Kirby. Uh, it's like Kirby I mean, Steranko, awesome. like psychedelic hybrid. Yeah, it was like that was fantastic. Yeah. So I was a little bummed in retrospect looking back at this and being like, oh man, he wasn't able to, he wasn't able to do it. Um, I'd read an interview with um, Larson that I'm sure we'll mention a little later, and he had said that there were a couple of people. He didn't mention any names, but that there were some people that they had reached out to, and you know they weren't able to. Uh, you know, for scheduling, either scheduling reasons or whatever, they weren't able to, to do that. So I would like to think that somebody said, hey, we should try and make that happen. Yeah. And it didn't happen as opposed to somebody not think about it because, I mean, like no brainer. Um, one other thing uh, is that they had tried to use um, some actual Kirby artwork. in huh. uh, He mentions uh, talking with the Kirby estate about mm-hmm. using um, unpublished artwork wow. like the there's a Kirby did an alternate version of the cover for Fantastic Four 64, which has the Sentry in it or the the Cree Sentry, not the right. I mean the yeah. Sentry that's in the thing anyway. Um, and the I guess because it wasn't because Marvel didn't buy that one, Marvel doesn't own it, so right. maybe Larson wasn't able to kind of get that from the Kirby estate because um, he wanted to have that as the second the cover for issue two rather than the, oh, wow. the one that they they went with um so you know unfortunately stuff like that wasn't able to uh, wasn't able to happen he did and funny enough in there he mentioned that he also wanted to use there was a kirby spider-man sentinels poster huh. um that was put out i think marvel mania or whatever put that out and he was like i wanted to have that in there and so it's funny in the interview he mentioned not being able to do that but if you look at the tom scioli pages page two or three that he did is like um has a panel that is essentially a you know one quarter size you know one quarter page size version of that poster like nice. it's spider-man <laughs> it's like three sentinels spider-man's hanging on the wall and you're like that that is that poster uh so and, and one of the things in, in looking at this that I, I find interesting is that um there's not a lot of like that sort of direct lift from Kirby, maybe in a way that like a lot of these sort of real tribute books and something like Ditko or, or or whatever, they'd be like, Oh, here's, Oh, that's the splash page from, you know, issue 64. That's covered to this or that's covered to that. They do a pretty good. And I'm not exactly sure who particularly to attribute um, this to. I mean, I'm sure Larson, you know, laying things out really kind of sets the, you know, sets the pace or sets the tone for a lot of this, but there's not, you don't, you're, you're not stopped in your tracks by looking at a panel and saying like, Oh, this is from this issue or this is from that issue. Um, which is, uh, which is super, super, super helpful. Yeah. There was, was there anybody you were surprised by sort of how on model they could be? (laughs) I guess I, I I was pleasantly surprised to see like Stan Lee show up to script the last issue. <laughs> like, yeah, like it's yeah, it's yeah. it's late model Stan Lee. It's not prime Stan Lee, but it's Stan Lee coming in to do like right over fake Kirby, which is odd. But yeah, um, people I was surprised. Like I was going to single out those those Steve Rude pages because they are gorgeous. Um, they are. I like those Eric Shanauer pages. That yeah, that was another name because yeah. you don't 
think of him as being, I guess, Kirby, anything other than yeah. like Oz. Yeah, Kirby, or anything other than like Oz or, you know, ancient, uh, ancient bronze. Ancient. Yeah. Another person that really surprised me was Michael Golden. Hmm. Um, his covers, he did at least two or three cover, two or three of the covers here. Considering his style is uh, more, I mean, a bit of a, apparently a bit of a chameleon, but I, you tend to think of his style as something more, uh, if not manga inspired, but certainly uh, not of this era. He right. was able to do some real spot on uh, Kirby stuff. And in looking back, I'd seen that he had done a couple of covers for what if back in 1980, something or other. Um, so he did the cover to like, what if Sue Richards had died right. Um, and it's got, you know, Sue in, in front in a casket and Reed going, you know, bonkers and sort of mid and then a nihilist there in the back. And it really looks like Kirby. Like I, it took me a while to figure out that like, Oh wait, that's not, that's not Kirby. Um, and I did not think he is not somebody I would have pegged to be able to do such a spot on while still having it be you know non non parody in terms of doom's actual involvement in these stories he shows up in every single issue of this thing Mm -hmm. i believe like here there's at least a cameo appearance by him like everywhere Mm -hmm. uh so i should also note that this is a story in which nothing ultimately happens uh because at the end like there is a cosmic cube like let's just make it put everything back the way it was before which you know is also a Lee Kirby device. It's the same as Fantastic Four Annual Three, uh, but it's uh, but so the reason that there is no lasting consequences of anything here is that there is a we're just gonna put everything back at the end. Yeah. There's not really much going on thematically either. Like it really mm-hmm. is twelve issues of let's just trot out everything from the first nine years of Marvel, from the first hundred issues of Fantastic Four. Everybody gets to make a cameo appearance. Everybody gets to come back. Doom gets to become the emperor of the world for the first time and not the last. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he talks about his what what he wants all this power for, which is a thing that we've mentioned on the show before, which around the time of Fantastic Four 100, this had not yet been revealed that he was trying to free his mother's soul from hell, that this was this was his ultimate goal. But you know, retroactively, that can come into play here, and so it does. Uh, and clearly, like one big source for Larson and Stevenson was the like 57, Fantastic Four 57 to 60, the, the uh, Doom steals the surfer's power story because yeah. here he steals Galactus's power because that's the only way that you top that. Right. Uh, and it's it's right, basically yep. the same setup, you know. Um, yeah. And then it gets undone. Uh, and of course, they're uh, defeated at, he's defeated at the end by Reed summoning all the Kirby monsters from like the, the, uh, pre-Fantastic Four horror titles, which, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, there, there's legitimate precedent for that going all the way back to like, read showing the scrolls uh, clipped out panels of Journey into Mystery in Fantastic Four number two. So, you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll buy that. Uh, and as you just mentioned that, I thought of, uh, it felt very um, Avengers uh, Kree scroll 
War, where like Rick Jones comes back and uses the cosmic whatever to to bring back uh, the the timely era, you know, the vision and, and whatever to uh, uh, to do that. So there's a there's a precedent for you know yeah. calling back uh, heroes of yore to uh, to help you or characters of yore, I should say. Although they're monsters are heroic in this case, so we'll go with heroes. There is even a tiny little callback to Avengers number one and a half. Thor encounters Doom and says something about like, oh yeah, I've, I've met Doom before, but I can't remember exactly where. The only place where he would have seen him at this point would have been in Avengers 1.5, which was not mm-hmm. published until 1999. So, One of the first Doom things that I was exposed to um, was Secret Wars. Yeah. So his trying to figure out what the Beyonders deal with, you know, deal is trying to get the Beyonders power, getting the Beyonders power and then losing it. Spoiler. It, it tracks very much with, you know, with sort of this as, you know, as well. So this felt very um, familiar in a lot of ways, but comforting uh, in, in, uh, in, in a way. So it, um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, you know, much more than than looking at it and saying like, oh, here's another, you know, oh, it's another Doom trying to get you know ultimate power right. plot, or it's you know this or, or that. There are a lot of things going on here that 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 give you something to uh, uh, enjoy, even if the plot is not necessarily the most uh, uh, groundbreaking. Um, and I think even yeah. like the Kirby as a style keeps mm-hmm. you on track. You can't really do a boring Jack Kirby story like. <laughs> It, it people has tried. To, people tried, yeah. But, um, but funny you should mention that, uh, if I can scroll hmm. over here to the Larson interview. Uh, Larson said, the thing about Jack is that other than a few repeated patterns, like big close-ups that he that uh, he typically crop a certain way, there are no regular patterns to his work. Even anatomy stuff changes from page to page and panel to panel. Jack didn't fall into the trap of repeating the same positions over and over. So I tend to try to just think dynamic and straightforward and hope for the best. Uh, Jack's primary goal is to tell a story in a clear fashion. Um, he may dress up things quite a bit, but the essence of it is to tell a story well. Uh, he was uh, concerned with details, but not specific details. So Galactus would always have the same silhouette, but not necessarily the same costume. Generally, I've tried then to do much of the same. Have the characters keep on the move, vary the camera angles as much as possible while picking the shots that tell uh, best tell the story. Jack wasn't big on referencing a specific room and keeping it consistent. He'd draw a different kitchen every time it appeared, draw a different lab, draw a different city. Uh, going back and researching something that he drew before uh, would likely slow Jack down. So he tended to blaze ahead rather than dwell on what he'd done in the past. So it's interesting that in a work almost designed to be like, let's try and emulate Kirby stuff stuff that Kirby had done before you know to a point where I mean you're not trying to, you're not going to fool anybody but you know almost sort of fool them Jack would have like not like almost you know that's almost in some ways antithetical to like what he you know the way he worked and it also sort of speaks to his uh you know genius in that he was just able to do that to just be like let's do something you know let's do something else like he's so primal in a way uh could tap into you know wherever he was getting it from however it was it was coming in like he was able to just 
you know, it's like, it's not looking back. I'll just, you know, I'll just come up with another one, do this and draw and, and, and stuff. And that's uh, great. Greg Matasevich, thanks so much again for joining us. Next week, Paul Tobin will be with me to talk about the Dr. Doom stories in Astonishing Tales number one through five, going back to 1970, 71. The Voice of Lotharia podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash Wolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflotveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Walk for the VOL. Douglas Walk appears by special arrangement with Universe 1218. His book, All of the Marvels, is a guided tour of 60 years and half a million pages of the Marvel comic story. All of the Marvels will be published by Penguin Press this October. Lord Doom commands you to order it. Tomorrow, on Streams of Thought, they've been called a philosophical fad, or a dangerous religious cult. But the adherents of the triune understanding insist that they are simply a new way of considering the world, to, quote, find balance in the three points of life, self, world, and spirit, unquote. Just a few short years after being founded by the mysterious Jonathan Tremont, the triune understanding has attracted adherents among the wealthy and powerful, including entertainers, politicians, and even the Avenger, Triathlon. What do the followers of the triune believe, and what really went on in the Manhattan headquarters that was recently destroyed by Taskmaster? We'll explain on Streams of Thought, tomorrow, here on the VOL. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies, until you die.